The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. One of the fun things about recording a podcast in one's car that's parked in one's garage is that sometimes uh, crickets get into the garage and you can't record that night. Thankfully, that uh, has not happened tonight, and I'm able to get back to the Norse myths. And as I mentioned, it seems that one good way to get through the Norse myths as an introduction for those who aren't familiar with them, but also for those who are familiar with them, is to go through the two basic texts and um, in tandem, you might say. In the last episode, I read from that great poem that begins the Poetic Edda called the uh, Voluspa, the uh, sayings, the the vision of the Cirrus. And tonight we will uh, backtrack, as I said that I would, We will start with the uh, creation of the world as it's given first in the Prose Edda, which is a later uh, collection, and then we will compare that with the version of creation and uh, I believe on up to uh, the mention of Yggdrasil, the tree, the great tree, world tree Yggdrasil, and we'll see what it says in the Poetic Edda. If we imagine that at least the poem uh, that we call the Voluspa was uh, in the air, even if it wasn't written down, but some version of it existed around the year uh, 1000 or so, and if, as we know, the author of the Prose Edda, Snorri Sturluson, lived from 1179 to 1241, we can begin to see some very interesting things. Uh, not only of what survived for the next uh, more than 200 years, enough for Snorri to know and to turn into prose, but also just what the needs were of the people, as I mentioned, or of the audience, whatever that audience may have been. I mentioned that one of the reasons, um, or this was a, a, a scholar named Ursula Dranke who said this, one of the reasons that the poem, the Voluspa, uh, lasted for so long, it seems, is that for all of its strangeness, it was popular with audiences. It was popular with people. It was immensely strange and immensely difficult, but people seem to have seen something in it that was worth, uh, that was worth saving. It's almost as if it is the Icelandic version, the Old Norse version of uh, putting all of those angels dancing on the head of a pin, but actually doing it, actually 
being able to, uh, it's probably not the right comparison, but still, uh, the idea that you're able to sum up an entire culture, especially an entire culture that has passed into history, uh, in a very short space. But uh, before we get to the poetic edit tonight, I want to read from the prose edda first. And before we even do that, there's the nice uh, little biography here of Snorri Sturluson, who wrote the prose edda. And as I said, he lived from 1179 to 1241. And this is what is in the front of the Penguin Classics of prose edda. This is what it says about Snorri Sturluson. He was born in western Iceland, the son of an upstart Icelandic chieftain. In the early 13th century, Snorri rose to become Iceland's richest and, for a time, its most powerful leader. Twice he was elected law speaker at the Althing, Iceland's National Assembly, and twice he went abroad to visit Norwegian royalty. An ambitious and sometimes ruthless leader, Snorri was also a man of learning, with deep interests in the myth, poetry, and history of the Viking Age. He has long been assumed to be the author of some of medieval Iceland's greatest works, including the Prose Edda and the Heimskringla, the latter of which is a saga history of the kings of Norway. And that's interesting to me because you can see where where myth and poetry has landed these days. This would sort of be like the equivalent of, I don't know, uh, Dwight Eisenhower uh, having uh, done what he did in World War II uh, and then becoming president. And then alongside that, or just after leaving office and giving his speech, I suppose, on the military-industrial complex, uh, what does he do? But he goes off and retires and uh, writes a manual of American poetry. Um, that seems like a wildly unlikely thing for any leader of America, any modern leader of America to do. And yet that is, you might say, that was the place of history and of poetry um, back in the uh, 12th and 13th century. Maybe there's an equivalent with Churchill, perhaps, who, uh, even if he didn't write a history of uh, British poetry, English poetry, he was able to compose a history of the English-speaking people, I believe, is what it's called, up through his own participation in World War II. But let's get to the stories. Um, as I mentioned, the, the edition of the Prose Edda that I will be reading from is published by Every Man's Library, and it is translated by Anthony Fox. But as I also mentioned, um, just as a, uh, a good other way of reading it um, is the Penguin Classics edition by Jesse Byock, because Jesse Byock's version contains a lot of chapter headings and he tells you where you are, um, whereas Anthony Fox does not. So that's just something worth mentioning. The uh, the first part of the prose edda is something called the Gilfaginning, and in Rudolf Simek's book, Dictionary of Northern Mythology, this is his description of what the Gilfaginning is. 
Uh, it is the first part of the prose Edda. In a framework story, Snorri Sturluson tells how the Swedish king, named Gilfi, goes to Asgard in disguise and calls himself Gangleri in order to find out about the Aesir and their wisdom. These are the gods. In the hall, or in a hall, he meets three gods, Har, the High One, uh, Yafnhar, the Equally High One, and Thridi, the Third, who all answer his questions. In these answers, Snorri Sturluson offers a systematic presentation of Nordic mythology, which is our most important source. And finally, Gilfi hears thunder and finds himself alone on a plane. Uh, that's a fun little uh, transition as well. Um, let's see. It's worth reading this paragraph, too. Uh, Snorri Sturluson uses the poem Voluspa as a source for his description of the gods, their attributes, their deeds, and of the mythical uh, Veldbild, as the Voluspa also proceeds from cosmogony, from the beginning of the world to the end of the world, and the new creation. Snorri Sturluson quotes over 60 stanzas from the Voluspa, and apart from this, he also quotes from uh, other poems in the Poetic Edda, and for the characterization of the gods, he also quotes a poem called Lokasana. The form of the Gilfaginning is that of, a, that of a didactic dialogue, probably known to Snorri from Latin works, such as Gregorius's Dialogues and the Elucidarius. El the treatment of the matter is free, and despite the perspective of the scholarly Middle Ages, it is also free from any Christian demonization of the ancient myths. However, the opinion that Snorri more or less believed in the things that he wrote about is extremely unlikely. Snorri deals with the myths with remarkable scholarly objectivity and distance. I quote that just to show that... Uh, what we're reading here already, as I've said, is uh, a bit of learnedness, a bit of learnedness looking back onto history. The, uh, uh, what do you call it, the didactic dialogue. Uh, this is a, uh, a genre that uh, is not Norse, but, is, uh, but comes from the Latin church and probably goes back before then. Um, it's also a nice way to organize a story. Um, not necessarily showing it the way that we are being told to today, but just to imagine, uh, I'm going to tell the history of the people. One way to do it is to have someone show up in disguise and just ask questions to the people who are in charge. Um, who did this? Who did that? When did they do it? How did it happen? And that's a wonderful way to arrange a story. So if we can get to the beginning of this frame story. And let's see, here we are. This is the first uh, uh, episode I will read from it. Uh, King Gilfi was ruler in what is now called Sweden. Of him it is said that he gave a certain vagrant woman as a reward for his entertainment, one plow land in his kingdom, as much as four oxen could plow up in one day and one night. Now this woman was one of the race of the Aesir, and of course he does not know that. Her name was Gefion, 
She took four oxen from the north, from giant land, the sons of her and a certain giant, and she put them before the plow. But the plow cut so hard and so deep that it uprooted the land entirely, and the oxen drew the land out into the sea to the west and halted in a certain sound. There Gephion put the land and gave it the name and called it Zeland. Where the land had been lifted from, there remains a lake. This is now called Lake Malar in Sweden. And the inlets in the lake correspond to the headlands in Zeland. Thus says the poet Bragi the Old, and this is an excerpt from Bragi the Old. This is the way that Snorri works. He tells something and usually gives excerpts uh, to finish or to embellish what he has just said. According to Bragi the Old, Gaethian drew from Gilfi, glad, a deep ring of land, the island of Zeland, so that from the swift pullers, that is oxen, steam rose, Denmark's extension. The oxen wore eight brow stars, his eyes, as they went hauling their plunder, the wide island of the meadows, and four heads. And so you can see right there what Snorri is doing. He is, um, he wants to preserve the old stories, and in this case he wants to preserve what the poet Bragi has to say. But he knows, as you can tell from what I just read from Bragi, from Bragi the Old, um, it's much shorter and it's much harder to discern unless you know the story itself. So he not only wants to write his own version of it, to sort of clear things up, but he does want to he does want to preserve the older versions of the stories, because that is important too. And as I've been saying all along here, not just with the Celtic myths, but back to the Hebrew Bible, so much weight is given to the history and the naming of a land. And in this case, uh, I'm sure many of you can just go on to Google and search for stories that are like this, where someone says, sure, I will give you a bit of this land, however much you can plow in a day or a year or with this animal or whatever it is. And they always get tricked somehow. But let's see what happens with Gilfi here. Um, King Gilfi, however, was clever and skilled in magic. He was quite amazed that the Aesir people had the ability to make everything go in accordance with their will. And so he wondered whether this could be as a result of their own nature, or whether the divine powers they worshipped could be responsible. So he set out to Asgard and traveled in secret and assumed the form of an old man and so disguised himself. But the Aesir were the wiser, in that they had the gift of prophecy, and they saw his movements before he arrived, and they prepared deceptive appearances for him. When he got into the city, he saw there a high hall, so that he could scarcely see over it. Its roof was covered with gilded shields like tiles. Theodolf of Hvnir refers thus to Valhall, or Valhalla, being roofed in shields. And here's another excerpt, this time from Theodolf of Hivenir, uh, who wrote, On their backs they let shine. They were bombarded with stones. Svafnirs, or Odins, 
Paul shingles his shields, those sensible men. Again, a sort of gnomic saying that unless you know the story, it doesn't make much sense. But put in the context of what Snorri is doing, uh, it certainly helps. And in the doorway of the hall, Gilfi saw a man juggling with knives, keeping seven in the air at the time. This man spoke first and asked him his name. He said it was Gangleri, and that he had traveled trackless ways. He requested that he might have a night's lodging there, and asked whose hall it was. The man replied that it belonged to their king. And I can take you to see him, the man said. Then you can ask him his name yourself. And the man turned ahead of him into the hall. Gilfi followed, and the door immediately shut on his heels. He saw there many apartments and many people, some engaged in games, and some were drinking, and some were armed, and some were fighting. He looked around and thought many of the things that he saw were incredible. And then he said, Every doorway before you go through should be peered round, for you cannot know for certain where enemies may be sitting, waiting inside. He saw three, three thrones, one above the other, and there were three men, each or one, sitting in each. Then he asked what the nature of their ruler was. The man who had brought him in replied that the one that sat at the lowest throne was king and was called High. Next to him was the one called Just as High, and the one sitting at the top was called Third. I believe all of these are versions of Odin. And then High asked the newcomer whether he had any further business, though he was welcome to food and drink like everyone else there in the High One's hall. He said that he wished first to find out if there was any learned person in there. High said he would not get out unscathed unless he was more learned and stand out in front while you ask. He who tells shall sit. And then it says, Gangleri began his questioning thus. And his first question is, Who is the highest and most ancient of gods? And that is where the beginning of the world, the story of the beginning of the world begins. Um, I will only be giving a few episodes here, but just to give you an idea, what does uh, the headings in the Penguin Classics version give us here? Uh, the episode I just read is, um, let's see, is King Gilfi and the woman Gefyun. Then uh, Gilfi encounters the three chieftains of the Aesir, the All-Father, Nifhelm and the Muspelashim, Gap and the emergence of Ymir, uh, the primeval cow, etc., etc., a large, etc., uh, Bergelmir and the appearance of the second race of frost giants. You can see where uh, Tolkien got a lot of what he's doing. So I'm skipping a lot of these episodes and I'm going straight to the world is created from Ymir's body. And this is, uh, as many of you will know, um, a great theme in the uh, Indo-European mythologies, where I believe from the Hittites, the Greeks, the Hindus, and... Um, I'm sure many others, the story that uh, the creation of the world is one of immense violence, that the 
the the first uh, existent being, usually a giant of some kind, is uh, murdered and dismembered by its progeny, and its body is set up as the sky and as the ground and the underworld and all the rest of it. And so this is the this is the Norse version of that very familiar and very uh, brutal story. It says this. Then Gangleri replied, what, is, what did Bohr's sons do then, if you believe that they are gods? And Heyer said this, There is not just a little to be told about that. They took Ymir and transported him to the middle of the Genunungap, and out of him they made the earth, out of his blood, the sea, and the lakes. The earth was made of the flesh and the rocks of the bones, stone and scree they made out of the teeth and molars and of the bones that had just been broken. Then spoke just as high. Out of the blood that came from his wounds and was flowing unconfined, out of this they made the sea with which they encompassed and, and contained the earth. And they placed this sea in a circle round the outside of it, and it will seem an impossibility to most to get across it. And then spoke third. Each each of these people in their, in their thrones is taking a turn telling this story. Then spoke third. They also took his skull and made out of it the sky and set it up over the earth with four points. And under each corner they set a dwarf. The names of these dwarfs were Ostri, Vestri, Nordri, and Sudri. Then they took molten particles and sparks that were flying uncontrolled and had shot out of the world of Muspel and set them in the middle of the firmament of the sky, both above and below, to illuminate heaven and earth. They fixed all the lights, some in the sky, some moved in a wandering course beneath the sky, but they appointed them positions and ordained their courses. Thus it is said in ancient sources that by means of them were distinguished, uh, by means of them days were distinguished, and also the count of years, as it says in the Voluspa. And this is in Snorri. He says he says this, as it says in the Voluspa, and he quotes from the Voluspa here. The sun did not know where her dwelling was. The moon did not know what power he had. The stars did not know where their places were. That is what it was like above the earth before this took place. Then spoke Gangleri. This is important information that I have just heard. That is an amazingly large construction and skillfully made. How was the earth arranged? And again, this is a wonderful storytelling technique. Uh, if you imagine this not being in the form of a dialogue, it would be very hard to stitch together uh, these pieces or to make them comprehensible or to just make them interesting. But just by having uh, a story told and then Gangleri saying, well, tell me more, how was the earth arranged? And you just have an answer. Uh, then High replied, it is circular round the edge and around it lies the deep sea. And along the shore of this sea, they gave lands to live they gave lands to live in to the races of giants. But on the earth, on the inner side, 
they made a fortification round the world against the hostility of the giants, and for this fortification they used the giant Ymir's eyelashes, and they called the fortification Midgard. They also took his brains and threw them into the sky, and made out of them the clouds, as it says here. From Ymir's flesh was earth created, and from blood sea. Uh, rocks of bones, trees of hair, and from his skull, the sky. And from his eyelashes, the joyous gods made Midgard for all men's sons. And from his brains were those cruel clouds all created. And again, those last two sentences were from a poem or another work that is not named. Again, Snorri is trying to save this old stuff while making it comprehensible with his own um, additions. If you will, uh, all of you out there, if all of you out there will uh, indulge me here, let me find something here. This is my version of Ymir, and this might give a sense also of what Snorri is doing, because I know that most people don't know this story, and so I was trying to tell it, but also uh, tell it in a contained way that made you not need to go and read the Norse myths, but also to make it serious and strange and kind of weird, because what I just read to you, um, I don't think that that is the way it is told, even in the Neil Gaiman version of the Norse myths, where everything is streamlined or where it, where, where you're not meant to imagine that someone is taking poems from here and sayings from there and then adding their own bit. Um, anyway, I will just read this poem. This is my poem on Ymir that will appear someday in a book called The Great Year. It says, you are walking on Ymir now, you know, and the sky is still his split skull, and the oceans we boiled were once his blood. Only the ice is not him, the glaciers formed by flowing rivers that froze into a steeping slag of solid cold that grew and gathered into a huge gap, that's the Guninga Gap that keeps getting mentioned here, that was there at the beginning of the world, even before the giants were there, um, into a, sleeping, a steeping slag of solid cold that grew and gathered into a huge gap, dividing and blending into an ice darkness, a winter dusk, a dim, cold blackness that was only a gap, a gorge, a gulf, at the bottom and beginning of time. No words, no awareness, only a well of cutting wind, cold, and creeping rain. But on the border of that broad abyss was heat and humid light that made the hoar-frost drip and pool and develop into the design of a man's body, a mountain of bones and moisture, who rose near the roots of that real tree, which is Yggdrasil, and the nine women who live in that wood, and who, when he slept, sweated a whole species from under his arm. And these are bits from the stories that I didn't read from, 
where Ymir is sort of sleeping near this gap, and suddenly there's heat and moisture, the same heat and moisture of creation that appears in the Hindu creation myths as well, um, of the uh, of the dismemberment and creation. Uh, my poem goes on, This was Ymir, father of the first families that fled from his body, as a dripping of clear drops that drew moisture and warmth to become men and women. A cow then came from that dripping chaos, born of the brine of that melting breach, and milk ran in four rivers from its udders, and Ymir drank from those dugs every day, and other bodies were brought into being, licked into life as the cow lapped blocks of salty ice, until its tongue and the salt and stinging frost became the heat's head and wholeness, and these salt bodies and these sweat bodies were the ones to rise up and rule over Ymir, and they beat bowls into shape for his blood, and those vessels become the voluminous sea, and the earth was bound by the border made from his body. His teeth turned to stone, the bones of his body became mountains, and our starry sky is his skull, that space set aside for sun and moon, and the stage for the seasons, just the blood-stained dome of Ymir's head, and the gore of his gashed flesh, just our great earth. Even as the skalds and storytellers are said to produce their poetry from the cup of his skull, the fire for feuds, and the fights between families, and how we all feign to flee from formlessness. All of this is baked into our bodies, this brutality, the viciousness of this design, with no escape. And so you see, even there, I am making a theology, an interpretation of what this story seems to say, or what it may have said to the audience at the time. What does it mean to, to believe um, or to tell a story that the very earth that you are walking on and living on and the sky that you look up to that helps you navigate around this earth um, and that, uh, that the oceans, uh, I mean, everything to do with the seasons, the round of the year, all the joy, all the sorrow, um, the agricultural round of the everything that allows you to travel or to just understand what is going on, all of that is the result of terrific, immense, brutal violence. Um, it's worth uh, pondering there. And the last episode that I will read from here is from the Prose Edda, is... Um, what it says about uh, Yggdrasil. Uh, then spoke Gangleri, Where is the chief center or holy place of the gods? High replied, It is the ash tree Yggdrasil. There the gods must hold their courts each day. Then spoke Gangleri, What is there to tell about that place? Then said just as high, that ash tree is, of all trees, the biggest and best. Its branches spread out over all the world and extend across the sky. Three of the tree's roots support it and extend very, very far. 
One is among the Aesir, the second among the Frost Giants, where the Genungan Gap once was. The third extends over Niflheim, and under that spot is Haverglamir, and Nidhogg gnaws the bottom of the root. But under the root that reaches towards the Frost Giants, there is where Mimir's well is, which has wisdom and intelligence contained in it, and the master of the well is called Mimir. He is full of learning because he drinks of the well from the horn Gjallarhorn. All father went there and asked for a single drink from that well, but he did not get one until he placed his eye there as a pledge. Thus it says in the Voluspa, I know it all, Odin, where you deposited your eye in that renowned well of Mimir. Mimir drinks mead every morning from Valfather's pledge. Know you yet, or what? And just the mention of uh, over Niflheim, uh, Havelgrimir, Nidahog, um, all of these things, the wells, um, these are all in the prose of Snorri, and it's interesting that what he thought he was doing, or what he was doing in his time, which was fleshing out stories that people knew, uh, to us coming to it with um, very little knowledge of these things, even me right now, um, not having read this stuff for a while, it gets confusing. Um, it is back to being uh, almost gnomic and uh, requires a lot of rereading and research. It has gone back into the shadows, you might say. Um, the third root of the ash tree extends to heaven, and beneath that root is a well which is very holy, called Weird's Well. There the gods have their court. Every day the Aesir ride up over Bifrost. It is also known as Oz Bridge. The names of the Aesir's horses are as follows. Best is Sleipnir. He is Odin's horse. He has eight legs. Second is Glad, third Gilir, fourth Glair, fifth uh, Skadebrimir, sixth Silthprop, seventh Sinir, eighth Gils, nine Faldhofnir, ten Gultop, Latefeti, eleventh. Baldur's horse, that is the son of Odin, Baldur's horse was burned with him when he died. And Thor walks to the court and wades rivers whose names are these. Kormt and Ormt, and two Kerlogs. These shall Thor wade every day when he is to judge at the Ash Yggdrasil. For Osbridge burns all with flame, the holy waters boil. And even there you can see this is just an insertion. This was a good place that Snorri or somebody else said, let's put in the names of the best horses. Let's put in the names of the uh, the rivers that Thor wades to. Um, we need to find a place just to keep these names in the record, in the memory, you might say. Then spoke Gangleri, does fire burn over Bifrost? And High said, the red you see in the rainbow is burning fire. The frost giants and mountain giants would go up into heaven if Bifrost was crossable by everyone that wanted to go. There are many beautiful places in heaven, and everywhere there has divine protection all around it. There stands there, there stands there 
one beautiful hall under the ash by the well, and out of this hall comes three maidens whose names are Weird, Verdande, and Skuld. These maidens shape men's lives. We call them the Norns. There are also other Norns who visit everyone when they are born in order to shape their lives, and these are of divine origin, these three, though others are of the race of elves, and a third group are of the race of dwarfs, as it says here. This is another excerpt from some unidentified source. A very diverse parentage, I think the Norns are. They do not have a common ancestry. Some are descended from Aesir, some are descended from elves, some are daughters of Dvalin. Then spoke Gangleri again. If Norns determine the fate of men, they allot terribly unfairly, don't you think? <laughs> uh, they allot terribly unfairly, when some have a good and prosperous life, and some have little success or glory, some a long life, and some short. High said, good Norns, ones of noble parentage, they shape good lives. But as for those people that become the victims of misfortune, it is evil Norns that are responsible. So this is um, uh, the Norse version of the Book of Job in a nutshell, you might say. Uh, then spoke Gangleri. What other particularly notable things are there to tell about the ash tree Yggdrasil? And High says, there is a great deal to tell of it. There is an eagle sits in the branches of the ash tree and it has knowledge of many things, and between its eyes sits a hawk called Vedfrolnir. A squirrel called Ratatosk runs up and down through the ash and carries malicious messages between the eagle and Nidhogg. Four stags run in the branches of the ash and feed on the foliage. The names of these stags are Dain, Dvelin, Donier, and Durathror. And there are so many snakes in Haverglamir with Nidhogg that no tongue can enumerate them. As it says here in another source, the ash Yggdrasil suffers hardships more than people realize. Stag bites above, and at the sides it rots. Nidhogg eats away at it below. This amazing tree, the largest tree in the world, this thing that holds the world together, even that, um, is beset every day by things that would like to destroy it. And Snorri quotes another source here. Also, it is said, more snakes lie beneath the ash tree Yggdrasil than any old fool thinks. Goinen and Moinen, they are Grafidnir's sons, Grabak and Gravvalud, Ofnir and Svafnir, I think, will forever mar the tree's twigs. So on the one hand, it's kind of uh, a cynical outlook. All of these things are just doomed, doomed, doomed. Everything is doomed. Everything is being beset by uh, uh, by these animals and by uh, just uh, just by the way uh, just by the way things suffer and uh, and rot. You might say, just time itself. But on the other hand, does it say something positive, actually? That even this thing that is beset and that is rotting and that is uh, um, on its way to doom, 
and is being used up that that is the thing. Even then, it is worthy of uh, veneration somehow. Um, it, also, it is also said that the Norns that dwell by Weird's well take water from the well each day, and with it the mud that lies round the well, and they pour it up over the ash so that its branches may not rot or decay. So that's good. And this water is so holy that all things that come into that well go as white as the membrane called the skin that lies round the inside of an eggshell, as it says here in another source. I know an ash, its name is Yggdrasil, high tree, holy, drenched with white mud. From it comes the dews that fall in the valleys. It stands forever green above Weird's well. The dew that falls from it, this is back to Snorri, the dew that falls from it onto the earth. This is what people call honeydew, and from it bees feed. Two birds feed in Weird's well. They are called swans, and from these birds has come that species of bird that has that name. Now, uh, and that'll be all that I read from the prose editor here. Now, isn't that remarkable? You end up, uh, just from questions about a tree, um, ending up talking about honeydew and swans. Um, as I read from a moment ago, uh, it isn't. It is no longer uh, believed, or believed seriously by scholars, that Snorri was himself a pagan. He didn't believe in the things that he was. Uh, he didn't believe in the believe in the material that he was uh, saving from oblivion. But isn't it interesting just to see from what I've read here, uh, the different storytelling, the different narrative ways that uh, he found to incorporate as much information as possible um, of little bits of uh, what we would call folklore and old sayings and from well-known poems to just uh, old sayings to to keep them. And I think this is also a very good example what I've read tonight of what it means to read the original material. Um, I saw that it was kind of uh, silly of me to say in the last episode that you should really focus only on the original stuff since most of what I talk about is about retelling and how things live on through retellings. But I do think it's worth at least knowing what the original says and how un-Hollywood it is, how unstreamlined it is, and how to our ears, how weird it is that, because uh, if we think today, how would you save the story of your culture or just of your family? Um, I don't think that any of the ways that Snorri or tomorrow when I uh, record bits from the Poetic Edda, um, I don't think any of the ways that the Norse end up doing it or that the Celts did it before then in the other episodes or the Mesopotamians or Egyptians, I don't think any of those ways are familiar to us anymore, and so it is worth thinking about and delving into. So I will pick this up in just a moment uh, tomorrow, and we will be reading about the creation of the world from the Poetic Edda. Here we go.
So let's just see how the Voluspa organizes and handles some of those same stories. I'll read parts of verses 1 through 20 of the Voluspa from the translation by Andy Orchard. This is how it begins. A hearing I ask of all holy offspring, the higher and lower of Heimdall's brood. Do you want me, corpse father, that is Odin, do you want me, corpse father, to tally up well ancient tales of folk from the first I recall? And the first thing you see here is that it's sort of similar. Um, it is a woman this time. It is a prophetess. It is not someone who is in disguise. It is someone who is, however, in the presence of Odin, just as uh, the fellow that I read last night is. He is in the presence of Odin asking questions, um, except now it is the seeress who does the questions but also has the answers. Do you want me to tell this story? I will tell this story. And she says, I recall those giants born early on who long ago brought me up. Nine worlds I recall, nine wood-dwelling witches, the famed tree of fate down under the earth. It was early in ages when Ymir made his home, Ymir, who we read about last night, the primordial giant. It was early in ages when Ymir made his home. There was neither sand nor sea nor cooling waves, no earth to be found nor heaven above, a gulf beguiling nor grass anywhere. That great word, that gap, is simply here just referred to as a gulf beguiling. How about that? Um, before Burr's sons, Burr being... Uh, the Burr being Odin and his brothers Vili and Ve, these are the sons of Ymir, before Burr's sons brought up the lands, they who molded famed Middle-earth, sun shone from the south on the stones of the hall, then the ground grew with the leek's green growth. The sun, moon's escort, flung from the south her right arm round heaven's rim, Sun did not know where she had a hall. The stars knew not where they had stations. Moon did not know what might be had. Then all the powers went to their thrones of destiny. High holy gods and deliberated this. To night and her children they gave their names. Morning they called one, another midday. Another evening to tally up the years. The Aesir assembled on action field. They who built high-timbered high temples and altars. They set down forges, fashioned treasures, shaped tongs and fabricated tools. They played board games in the meadow. They made merry. And in no way for them was there want of gold. Until there came three ogres' daughters, vastly mighty from giants' domain. So those are the first eight verses. Uh, each of those verses is about four lines, four or five lines of poetry long in translation. There is no mention um, of the killing of Ymir and of tossing his head here and his flesh there, etc. Um, that is how they decide, that is how the poem, the poet, uh, the Voluspa decides to organize this material. And then 
verses 9 through 16, another eight verses, is the interpolation of the tally of the dwarfs, which I won't read here. But I think it is another example of, um, for some reason, uh, the names of these dwarfs was considered uh, important enough to hold on to, and for another important reason that I still can't quite fathom, it was decided to put it in the middle, in the beginning of this great and central poem. But when we get back to verse 17, we're back to um, we're back to the creation of the world. Um, until well, let's read verse 8 and then go to 17, just to just to keep up with it. They played board games in the meadow. They made merry, and in no way for them was their want of gold until there came three ogres' daughters, vastly mighty from giants' domain, until there came three from that company, powerful and pleasant Aesir to a house. They found on land, lacking vigor, ash and embla, free of fate. Breath had they not, energy had they not, no warmth nor motion nor healthy looks, but breath gave Odin, energy gave Honir, and warmth gave Lodur and healthy looks. So they find the branches of these trees. I believe the image is, is that they find it on the shore. And uh, people are descended from trees, I suppose you would say. But it takes Odin and Hunir and Lodur uh, to give them healthy looks, to give them breath, to give them warmth, to give them motion, to give them life. And it is only here at verse 19 that it says, an ash I know stands, Yggdrasil by name, a high tree drenched with bright white mud. From there come the dews that drop in the dales. It always stands green over destiny's well. Capital D, destiny, by the way. And verse 20, from there come maidens knowing much. These are the Norns. Uh, from there come maidens knowing much. Three from the lake that stands under the tree. Destiny they called one, becoming the second, they carved on wood tablets, and Shalby was the name of the third. Laws they laid down, lives they chose, for the children of mankind, the fates of men. And that's it. That takes us to exactly where we were last night. In the prose edit, the only problem, or not problem, the only thing is, it took me seven minutes or so to get to that point here in the Poetic Edda, it took me about 45 minutes to get there in the Prose Edda last night. That gives you an idea of what uh, Snorri Sturluson was doing, but also what the poet of the Voluspa is doing. And we can spend a bit of time here. Uh, for those of you who just wanted to hear the poetry part, you can probably stop here. And the rest of this will be spent with some of the details from the Voluspa that I just read. That, are, that I think are interesting and worth mentioning. The first comes from the notes that Andy Orchard provides to his translation. And it says that uh, of all the poems preserved in the Codex Regius, that is the manuscript that includes uh, the Poetic Edda, the Voluspa is perhaps the hardest to fathom. The fact that it survives in other versions, including the Hauk's book and different recensions of Snorri's prose Edda, some certainly more Christian than others, makes, its, makes clear its allure, its importance to Icelanders. 
and several of the other mythic poems in the Codex Regius, Odin also consults a wise source about his fate and about the fate of the world. As in another story, what is given here is both ancient lore of the past, but also prophecy of the future. The Cirrus, speaking in the first person and the third person, preserves, albeit somewhat confusingly, and that's nice that um, Andy Orchard uh, can also say quite confusingly. Um, let's see. Uh, it, let me start the sentence over again, sorry. Uh, the Cirrus, speaking in the first person and the third person, preserves, albeit somewhat confusingly, the distinction between the past and the present knowledge and of future prediction. A contrast echoed in the observation, much lore she knows, I see further ahead, in verses 44, 49, and 58. There is much lore, delivered with a sense of urgency, that seeks to explain the sweep of history. Our created world is born from the blood and the bones of a murdered giant, who elsewhere in the Codex Regius had himself emerged only very slowly from primeval ice. Bloodshed begins and ends our world. Bloodshed begins and ends our world, alongside a greed for gold, a breaking of vows, and an essential enmity and deep disparity between beings. In the world of the Voluspa, gods and giants are simply born, while men and dwarfs are made. There are different kinds of beings, and who might coexist and consult each other are not the same, and there are different kinds of gods who wage war. The Aesir loss and Vanir victory are not found in the other texts, where the Vanir seem subordinate or simply subsumed. But stranger still is the ongoing enmity between gods and giants. The gods, Odin and his brothers, murder the first giant Ymir, the father of them all, and then all the gods are attacked by the giants at the end of the world. We are evidently not supposed to sympathize with the giants, and we are seldom given their perspective. They are apparently all killed, but see verse 66. Moreover, while Christianity has influenced the text and the thought world of the Voluspa, the Voluspa nevertheless is not a Christian poem. The level of Christianity implied is casual, and it is a late addition by a poet on the very cusp of becoming a Christian, but not yet having fully embraced it. This account is an elegant way for the oddly nostalgic and deferential view of the pagan gods, and oddly nostalgic and deferential view of the pagan gods, I think, is uh, a good uh, description of how the Celtic gods were viewed in the episodes I did there. Um, this, accounts, this account is an elegant way for the oddly nostalgic and deferential view of the pagan gods, even as their amoral behavior and culpable role in their own downfall are emphasized. And it says here, the earliest reference to the Voluspa occurs in the skaldic poetry of the devoutly Christian poet Arnar, or Arnor Jarlskald, Jars, who died after 1073, who, in a series of poems composed in 1046 to 1065, refers to the pagan gods in a literary and untroubled acknowledgement of ancient history. And isn't that interesting?
And now we can go to the notes, the commentary on the Voluspa, the voluminous commentary on the Voluspa that, um, that Ursula Dronke gives in her translation. Again, um, I just looked online today and this edition of the Voluspa runs to, I don't know, a few hundred dollars. Uh, the Poetic Edda, Volume 2, The Mythological Poems, published by Oxford in 1997. So get this from Interlibrary Loan, if what I'm about to read to you interests you at all. Uh, the first thing she says, she's talking about the, the voice of the Sibyl, the voice of the prophetess. This is what she says. Uh, the poet has given a dramatic form to his great theme, for which I know no parallel. He has only a single speaker, but he creates a spirit world for her to converse with. The speaker is I, the outer, the other voice is always she, the first and third person, as has been mentioned. The poet warns us from the outset that even the I, the first person, is not necessarily a stable human being. She is alive, she is ostensibly human. She is addressing a human audience in stanza one, and yet in stanza two she remembers being a primordial fosterling in the giant world of death. The poet is preparing us for a poetic world of heightened imagination in which uh, Volure, reincarnated, remembered former lives, gazed in trance at the hidden habitation of the cosmos and spoke with spirits under the night sky and had constantly close to them, uh, talking, a she, a second self, another being who communicated her own experience. The poet creates this haunted, reverberating atmosphere very well, Ursula Dronke says, and I agree. Uh, later on, what does she say? Um, as, the, uh, as the seeress assembles her memories, she reveals her authority. In stanza two, she reveals knowledge of the past learned at the knees of the very first inhabitants of the cosmos and knowledge of the future learned from the prescient dead. Her memory goes to the brink of time. She recalls the nine Evidur, the wood ogresses, who are the giantess roots of the world tree. And she recalls them even before their holy offspring, Heimdallar, was born at the edge of the earth, when he was still in gestation in the timber of their nine bodies underground. And even further here, the poet has drawn in these four stanzas, stanzas 17 through 20, several distinct traditional notions. This is the one about uh, the people being born out of trees and Odin and his friends giving life to the branches. Um, the poet links each one of these notions to another by a single point of likeness. The myth of the fashioning of the first man and woman out of wood is linked to the myth that the world tree is the parent of mankind. The bridge between them is the common material of man and tree. The world tree has at its foot a well of fate. In that water, the women of the lake live, the women of the lake live, who emerge to determine the destinies of men. So the poet moves, conjoining from Oscar to Oscar, from Brunner to Ser, 
to the three lake maidens, wise from the oracular element they inhabit, who come to cut upon the material of man himself, a piece of wood, the lottery mark, the rune, the thing that decides their fortune. That's a wonderful way of putting it. Um, let me see. And now, about 40 pages later, what does she say? Here, this is, this is worth reading here. This is the, this is just one paragraph on the, the Christian context of the Voluspa. And this is what it says. Uh, the poet of the Voluspa must have lived at some time of his life in a community where Christian thought was familiar and he had come to comprehend at least certain aspects of it very well. He has external effects in his poem that could come from eschatological homilies or apocalyptic visions of sinners in hell, such as verses 44 and 38. The image of the bleeding balder in verse 31 and of the weeping mother, verse 33, all recall Christian stereotypes. A native Norse genre of religious prophecy may have existed also, to which the Voluspa conforms. But the only other record that might relate to it is the Irish account of Ota giving her answers, quote-unquote giving her answers, in Cluan McNoise, which allows us little insight into context or structure. The Volva in the Voluspa, the prophetess in this poem, is the only Nordic sibyl who expressly concerns herself with divine matters in the extent sources in those sources that have survived. Centuries before the Voluspa would have been composed, however, the pagan sibyl of the classic world had already had an established place in Christian tradition, particularly since St. Augustine himself cited her song on the sign of judgment in the city of God from circa 425, translating it from the original Greek into Latin. In England, the Greek text of, uh, of this was translated independently into Latin by two poets around the year AD 700. The Cantus Sibylle was made part of the Christmas office of the church from the 9th to the 11th century, from the... Uh, and from the late 9th century, musical notation survives in about 50 liturgical manuscripts throughout Europe. The Cantus, with its vivid portents and horrors as the earth breaks apart, and with its thrilling music as well, could very well have been heard by Norsemen in English, and isn't, uh, Norsemen in England. And isn't that cool? Um, again, this is, this is not... Uh, to sully those people who think that, uh, um, who want to believe that all of all of this material is uh, pure from the beginning and it came from a straight line from a, uh, a CRS back then right to us now. Um, this is not to sully the achievement of what the Voluspa is. It is just to point out again and again, which is what I hope to do. <coughs> excuse me, in this series on great myths is to show uh, what the real achievement of this stuff is, which is not that it appears and, uh, and reaches you centuries later untouched. It is that meaning, that beauty, that great power, great terror, great 
love and great joy are still inherent in these things, even though they are a mixture, even though they've been tampered with, even though in the case of this poem, um, it was probably written by someone who was no longer pagan, even though uh, Snorri, a few centuries later, definitely not a pagan, still saw a reason to preserve bits of this in his own book. That is the way these things uh, survive. And let's see. There. Let's see where we are in our next bit here. And then she goes to a straight commentary on the text. And this again goes back. Uh, Ursula Dronke has layers and layers of commentary. And each time you get to the next section of commentary, you always go back to the beginning of the poem. And here she makes a nice, uh, a nice observation here. Um, when we're talking about uh, uh, the very first line of the poem, what does it say? Um, a hearing I ask of all holy offspring. Just as the prophetess begins to speak, she says that in the Roman historian Tacitus, in his Germania, chapter 11, uh, he notes that the priests that had the right of control over Germanic assemblies, uh, and it was those people who called for silence, and she quotes some Latin that I will not try to read here. The vulva in the voluspa appears to combine both the sacral and the skaldic traditions, which may always have been deliberately associated in heathen times, both sacral and skaldic, both the religious and the poetic, the professional poetic. And, uh, and this was when skalds presented their verses as the inspiration of Odin. Norse historical sources do not record any vulva addressing an audience in a temple or a hallowed assembly, however. But the Irish chronicle, The War of Gaethiel, with the Gael, however, records that when the Viking Torges plundered the monasteries of Meath and Connacht around the year 838, uh, Cluan Mignois was, um, was taken by his wife. It was on the altar of the great church that she used to give her answers. So that's just one line out of, uh, out of a record of a plundering of a monastery where you do see uh, a, a prophetess, a woman addressing uh, an audience in this way. And, seven. and then for the, the fifth line here in the first verse, um, do you want me corpse father to tally up well ancient tales of folk from the first I recall. Um, and Ursula Dronke says, I assume that the poet here implies a situation that may often have been a real one in heathen times, namely, that a speaker addresses a statue of a god before an audience, either in the temple itself or brought out to the all thing. So she's addressing Odin. Do you want me, Odin? So you can already imagine she's there, uh, with whatever assembled audience there is, and now it's presumed that there might even be a statue of Odin that she is uh, addressing directly. And this picture sort of gets starts to get fleshed out a bit. Let's see. Um, 
talking about the nine underworlds here a little later on. She says this, uh, the nine underworlds relate to the widespread archaic concept of layered realms of existence below and above the Earth's surface, which are held together by a single axle, the world tree or pillar. In Eurasian rituals, the realms, usually nine or seven in number, are traversed by the shaman up and down uh, the pillar in the shamanic trances. They may be symbolized by notches on a single tree or represented by a sequence of trees which the shaman must climb. The concept of nine heavens in, uh, in the Norse material is preserved only elsewhere in the list of their names in another poem, whose name I won't try to read here either, where it says, uh, Nine are the heavens counted on high. Remnants of the system of nine layers above the earth and nine below in which the Earth's roots grow above Tartarus, or Nifhel, in the Norse material, can be seen in Hesiod's Theogony, lines 722 to 728. And in Hesiod, who I believe is 8th century BC Greece, uh, in Hesiod the layers have become distances measured by time, in which uh, it's not nine layers, but it is a nine days drop from heaven to earth, and another nine days rise from Earth to Tartarus. And let's see. Which part is this? talking about verse 8. Let me read verse 8 again. Uh, verse 8 says, uh, after the Aesir assembles and they fashion treasures and they fabricated tools, etc. Verse 8 says, they played board games in the meadow, they made merry, and in no way for them was there want of gold until they came, until there came three ogres' daughters, vastly mighty from giants' domain. This is what Ursula Dronke says in part. This goes on for pages, but this is just one very interesting paragraph about, about all of this. She says, in human affairs, it would seem, the board game, mentioned the board game there, and it appears later in the Voluspa, and also uh, many, many years from now will be of great importance to my poem, The Great Year. Um, it would seem that the board game was believed to have remote control over happenings. In the fiction of the Welsh story, The Dream of Ranabui, the fighting between Arthur's young knights and Owain's ravens is governed by the chess play of each of the leaders. In a story preserved in the Germanic historical tradition, Rodolphus, king of Heroli, circa 500, the year 500, stays in his camp during battle, and a watchman reports to him on the distant battle from a treetop and messengers report also to Arthur and Owain. Though for the Heroli the battle was disastrous, it would seem that Rodolphus had played a ritual game on their behalf. The gods, the Tafel that the gods are playing in Voluspa Eight, the game, is the ritual game that maintains the golden fortunes of the world through the movement of the celestial bodies over the heavens. How about that? 
Um, it's all from a game, and of course there were also games in the story of um, uh, of Diarmuid and Grania as well um, in the Celtic uh, episodes that I did. Um, as another scholar points out, the game of chess, as we know it, as we know it, has been associated throughout its development with astronomical symbolism, and this was even more overt in related games that are now obsolete. Investigation shows that the battle element of chess seems to have developed from a technique of divination in which the Chinese desired to ascertain the balance of ever-contending yin and yang forces in the universe. This was in use in the 6th century or so China, whence it passed around the 7th century to India to generate the recreational game. The, this image chess derived in its turn from a number of divination techniques which involved the throwing of small models, symbolic of the celestial bodies, onto prepared boards. There were also intermediate forms between pure casting and casting followed by combat moves. And Ursula Dronke says, I cite this passage because it illuminates in Old Norse the symbolic link between the game mentioned here and the world's fortune that is also mentioned and the association of throwing dice with this game, which reenacts, as it were, the element of chance in the world's fortunes. In many Norse graves, dice are found with game boards and pieces. Um, for the association of the gaming, gaming board with heaven and the divine power, see another uh, source which says this. It says, Christ owns to the extent that he marks out of the seven heavens about the kingly seat. It is his hand that has strewn in them the gaming board of beautiful stars. And another, uh, another scholar notes that the balancheri board has seven rows of seven holes, and the central hole is ringed for the king. And let's see, uh, in the realm of mythology, the game mentioned in verse 8 here, symbolizing the moving cosmos, is also a variant of the cosmic mill, whose turning can bring good or evil fortune. Their legends present variations of the myth of the Golden Age and its loss. And finally, the Finnish myth found in the Kalevala. Uh, the Finnish myth of the shattering of the prosperity bringing Sampo provides a vivid parallel of this. How about that? It is quite a journey just in that one paragraph. And as I said, there are more than 100 pages of these, of these notes. Uh, the very last thing that I will read here is her long, Ursula Dronke's long page about Yggdrasil, and then we will call it a day. Thank you for listening to all of this, to those of you who have made it to the end. This is what she says. Um, Yggdrasil is the nominative form that only occurs here. Uh, it means the terrible one. It is a, it is a name for Odin. Uh, Y-G-G-R, terrible one, is a name for Odin. And Drasil, D-R-A-S-I-L-L, is a poetic term for horse, so that the name Yggdrasil means Odin horse, or Odin horse. This name must relate to sacrificial practices that go back to an ancient Indo-European tradition. In the writings of Adam of Bremen, 
The sacrifice that was practiced at Uppsala every nine years is described, in which the bodies of men, dogs, and horses are all hung on the trees in the temple grove, and the trees are considered to be divine because of the death or putrefaction of the victims. Though the sacrifice and veneration of horses is well attested in Germanic lands, the only recorded instance of the sacrifice of a horse on a tree is at Uppsala. As another scholar notes, the archaic practice of horse sacrifice is also most sharply illuminated by Hindu or Indian religious texts. Now, I was about to say that. This might be why uh, the Hindu and the Norse material are the ones that speak most closely to me. It is because in some ways they are very, very distantly but very closely related. Uh, Ursula Dronke says, I set out briefly the most relevant points of interest for Yggdrasil. First, the, the, the uh, second part of the name again, Drasiel, horse. Uh, it relates etymologically to the old High German Drason, Drasjan, to snort, to breathe heavily, to puff and to blow. In a, in a circa 10th century text of Virgil's Georgics, the gloss on, on uh, Drasot is written over another word for exhales, the as as a as an illustration of the neighing horse snorting its fury from its nostrils. The horse's powerful breathing is significant, and in an in Indian ritual in the Hindu texts, the Satipatha Brahmana, cited by Ananda K. Kumar Swami, it says that the sacrificial horse is the sun in a likeness. It is made to snuffle at the bricks of the fire altar by the priest. The bricks represent all worlds and all beings, the children of the sun, who, uh, as the life of all beings, is also the god Prajapati, lord of all children, lord of children and people, a procreative aspect of the god Brahman. The snuffling of the horse, quote, bestows the breath indeed upon, and, and quote, these children, for the god is in the horse. Prajapati became the horse and sniffed at them. They procreated themselves. Compare this to Genesis 2.7. God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. What is remarkable for Old Norse is remarkable for Old Norse in the Indian texts is that the breath of life is breathed by a horse, that the god is identified with a horse, and that the horse is the one that is sacrificed. And indeed, that is the remarkable thing. Um, in the Indian sacrificial practice, the sacrificial tree or post may be regarded as standing for the sacrificer. If the sacrificial tree is the world tree and the sacrificer is a god, that means that the world tree then stands for the god himself. One scholar cites the legend of the Hindu god Agni, the fire god, who hides from the other gods and takes the form of a horse. He then lives in, he then lives in the world tree, here named Asvatha, the horse abode, for an entire year, identifying with both horse and tree. In the Indian horse sacrifice ritual, the priest as he prepares the sacrifice, whispers into the ear of the horse the enumeration of all the good fortunes that will come because of the sacrifice. 
And as listeners will find out in a few episodes, this is very similar to an episode uh, towards the end of the world in the Norse stories where um, uh, Balder is dead and Odin whispers into the ear of his dead son as he lies on his funeral pyre. Uh, Ursula Dronke says, We may guess that the secret is the the secret that is whispered is the renewal of the world's life and of Baldur's. And it's uh, comparing it to other charms and other uh, bits of folklore. Um, the sun as the originator of life and the horse as the symbol of the moving sun. And therefore the appropriate sacrifice is to be made for the renewal of the sun and the life it brings to the world. All of these play a part in the mythology of Odin because he or his Indo-European ancestor, was a solar deity. He has only one eye, which sees everything, just like the sun. He is a traveler visiting the homes of men, just like the sun. His eclipse is to be swallowed by a great wolf, which, in the stories, is just like the sun. Um, and there we have it. Uh, what does it say? Uh, this vast background of archaic fragments of tradition associated with the mythology of the sun helps to explain Odin's place as the highest of gods in the Germanic tradition and the giver of breath to man in the Voluspa. It also accounts for the name of the world tree as Yggdrasil, a name of the god when he was himself the sacrifice and the sacrificer, identified with the sacrificial tree itself. Now, I could talk for another 10 minutes about all of that, but I think I've uh, made this episode long enough. I invite you to go and think about all of this and um, await uh, this next episode. Thank you, as always, for listening. If you enjoy this episode, please click on the link in the post description where you can learn about different ways of supporting this podcast. You can also support this podcast by going to wordandsilence.com where you can buy copies of my two books of poetry, To the House of the Sun and Bone Antler Stone, as well as a collection of short stories, The Lonely Young and The Lonely Old. And as always, thank you for listening. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to Human Voices Wake Us, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.